0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the HRW Shift podcast. I'm Emma Neville, a behavioral science analyst here at HRW, and today we're going to be talking about dementia. Specifically, we're going to be talking to an expert on the topic, Alison Kinnan, before examining the existential question of whether we would want to know whether we were going to get dementia if that information were available to us. So thank you all for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy. To help set the scene for us today, we've got our in-house expert on dementia, Caitlin.
1: Hi, everyone.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Caitlin. Could you give us a quick introduction?
1: I'm Caitlin, a research executive at HRW and also a member of HRW Shift. As part of my undergraduate degree in psychology, I did some research with dementia caregivers about the transition that they make when their loved one goes into a care home. So, yeah, really looking forward to speaking about the topic of dementia today.
0: And I'm really glad you're here because I know relatively little about dementia, probably about as much as the average lay person. So if you don't mind, I would love to ask you just a couple of questions to get our heads around the topic and understand a bit more about dementia. So my first question is, what is dementia?
1: So dementia is a syndrome which is associated with the ongoing decline of our brain functioning. And when we talk about dementia, we describe a set of symptoms, which may include memory loss um, and difficulties with things like thinking, problem solving, as well as language. And when we think of dementia, we often think about the most common type, which is Alzheimer's disease. But there are also other types of dementia, such as vascular dementia, Lewy's bodies, as well as frontotemporal dementia. And they all have slightly different etiologies, but are all a progressive disease.
0: Okay, so Alzheimer's disease is a type of dementia?
1: Exactly, yeah.
0: And what causes dementia?
1: So as I said, there are lots of different types and as a result there are lots of different causes of dementia. However, it's usually down to either an injury to the brain or as a result of a disease such as Alzheimer's disease. And as a result of this brain injury or this disease, it causes essentially the destruction of our brain cells, which is responsible for causing the symptoms of dementia that patients experience.
0: That clarifies things. And are all types of dementia progressive?
1: Unfortunately, yes. All types of dementia are progressive and symptoms will sadly get worse over time. What tends to happen is that symptoms that patients or people with dementia experience, that will tend to reflect the different parts of the brains that are affected. So more of the brain is affected, obviously, as the disease progresses. And as a result, the different types of dementia, Lewy bodies, dementia and frontotemporal dementia and Alzheimer's disease in the later stages will tend to show similar symptoms because it is affecting a vaster amount of our brain.
0: And perhaps an optimistic question, but is there anything you can do to prevent dementia?
1: So, yeah, this is really interesting. And you'll hear more about this um, from Alison, who we'll be speaking to later in the podcast. But some research that was conducted actually estimated that about one third of cases of dementia could be reduced by reducing the risks of modifiable risk factors. So things like simply having a good night's sleep, exercising and having a healthy diet. Unfortunately, however, there are about two thirds cases of dementia that are actually caused by causes, which are not easily modifiable. And sadly, there are still no ways that we can actually prevent, cure or even delay dementia.
0: Okay, that sounds really interesting. I'm excited to hear what Alison has to say. We'll jump straight into your interview.
1: So thank you very much for joining me today, Alison. It would be great if we could just start off by you introducing yourself and telling me a little bit more about your roles and responsibilities as a health psychologist working in the area of dementia.
2: Right, lovely. Well, thank you for asking me to be part of this, Caitlin. So um, as a health psychologist, what I do at the moment is I work... um, for a university research department, um, really looking at neurodegenerative research um, and predominantly dementia, but also maybe Parkinson's and things like that. Um, And in terms of the the sort of psychological work that I'm doing, um, part of what I do is neuropsychological assessments for people who um, maybe come to the clinic and it's a very clinical um, part of my work within a memory clinic, because they've got some sort of anxiety about their memory or because the GP has referred them and so I would run through the various questions that um, will give us a good basis for for producing a diagnosis but obviously there's a lot more to giving someone a diagnosis of dementia than just a test score so I do a lot of support pre-diagnostic support with patients and also with family members because you can imagine there's an awful lot to take on board and um, you know, some people are, are not sure whether they want to want want to have a diagnosis or not. So we discussed that and work through that. I've also been involved in developing a psychosocial group intervention for people with a particular type of less common dementia. So that's just been underway. And uh, the other thing I do is I'm part of some research studies, scan studies and diagnostic studies and things where we have research participants who volunteer to come and have scans or bloods or tests Mm -hmm. and things, you know, just to just to try and move the science forward and discover more about what's going on, really. Mm -hmm. So it's quite varied.
1: Yeah, it sounds very varied and really interesting. So from your first hand experience meeting people with dementia, Mm -hmm. what can you tell me about what it's like to first receive a diagnosis of dementia?
2: Well, I think the first thing to say is it's a very individual thing. Um, Like in any health condition, um, it's not just a matter of telling someone, it's a matter of what's going on in their life already, what's built up to it, who else they've got in their life, you know, to help support them or to or to, or to make more demands on them in some ways. Um, I think for some people it is surprisingly quite a relief to actually be told that they have dementia because mm-hmm. sometimes the fear of not knowing is worse than the fear of having a label for something. Yeah. Um, And for some people, it's taken quite a long time for them to get a diagnosis. And I think that's particularly um, people who've got maybe an early onset dementia. So they're Mm -hmm. they're younger, they're under 65. Or if they've got a dementia like maybe frontotemporal dementia, which people get sort of behavioural problems and sometimes Mm -hmm. they're admitted for psychiatric treatment and things. And for them you know, they don't feel that they have a psychiatric illness and to have a dementia diagnosis is is somewhat of a relief. Mm-hmm. For other people, it can be completely devastating. And um, some people have been in denial for a long time. And it's often a family member who says, come on, we've got to go to the doctor, we've got to, you know, we've got to follow this up. And, and the person themselves may not have much insight into the fact that their abilities are declining. Uh, and I think you often find that, Um, perhaps in where you've got a partners living together and maybe one of them sort of covers up for the other one so if they can't manage to do things Mm -hmm. the other one will do it and they'll just get along fine and then maybe I think perhaps lockdown will be classic you know after not seeing someone for six months a son or a daughter goes and visits you know and and they think my goodness there's been a huge deterioration you know we need to go and get seen and at that point I think it's really quite devastating for the person to receive a, a um, diagnosis, and that's why it's important that it's managed carefully, and that you give people, you know, hope and information alongside a diagnosis, mm-hmm. um, and you give them time to work through what, in a lot of conditions, you know, we call stages of grief, you know, um, the loss that they feel for all the things they thought they were going to do and may feel they can't do now,
1: mm-hmm. you
2: know, the why me questions, the anger. Yeah, things of like that. Thank you for that.
1: So, you mentioned there a little bit about lockdown, and I've seen you've been researching the effect that COVID 19 is having. So, we'd be really interested to hear from your point of view about some of the challenges that people with dementia and their caregivers have faced over COVID 19 and lockdown.
2: Right, certainly. Well, starting with the people who actually have dementia themselves. And obviously, there isn't a typical person with dementia, but just um mm-hmm. considering t- perhaps typical um problems that people might have, one of the biggest ones i think is is um the isolation, and a lot of people are very used to going out to day centers or to um organizations for people with dementia, so there's things like singing for the brain and games for the brain and um various interventions you know gardening and all those sort of things which really improve people's well-being and and are hugely important to to both them and to their caregivers just to get out of the house to see other people and of course that stopped that stopped overnight and Mm -hmm. i think that was a huge shock for people and a lot of people were very fearful and really their understanding of what's going on is obviously limited what's been on the television has been you know people um, in dressed up in PPE, which is again yeah. frightening for people, mixed messages, insistence on hand washing and masks and things without probably simple enough messages for people mm-hmm. to understand why on earth would that be um, and so I think you know a lot of a lot of fear and isolation and perhaps not understanding why family members can't come and see them anymore or why people can't hug them anymore, I think for people with one of the the dementia types that I do a lot of work with is um, dementia with Lewy bodies where mm-hmm. people get a lot of hallucinations. And so having to do things like um, remote communication with people mm-hmm. online or with doctors online, you know, for, for health, health consultations can be very difficult because they find it difficult to self, se- sort of separate what's real and what's on the television anyway. Mm-hmm. And, you know so seeing people they would normally see in real life on a screen can be very problematic mm-hmm. um, you know so it's so a lot of problems really and for caregivers as well you know if if you're just about coping with the help of other family members and all of those services carers physios ots and all those people who come in even chiropodists and everybody else
1: mm-hmm. you know
2: or a daily walk to the shops to break the day up mm-hmm. suddenly being stuck at home is is a very difficult thing, and it's difficult for people to to express that sometimes because they don't really want to maybe express to other family members anything that seems disrespectful to the person with dementia. Yeah. And you know, and they maybe are never on their own enough to actually speak over the phone to those mm-hmm. other family members and say how difficult it is. So to a degree, they're they're having to keep in all those those um difficult and stressful feelings mm-hmm. so um so yeah no I think it's been very hard for for caregivers and you know I'm not surprised a lot of them are really under a lot of stress anyway and, and mm-hmm. I think that that's not obviously going to have been helped by this.
1: Well thank you very much for that Alison it's been great to hear your account so it would be good now to move on to hearing about treatment options so what are the treatment options that are currently available for people with
2: dementia Right. I think um I mean I can't go through every kind of dementia but if we look mm-hmm. at Alzheimer's so Alzheimer's is the sort of most common dementia and um the problem with Alzheimer's is that people develop these these amyloid plaques and these sort of abnormal proteins and so really the treatments are, are sort of various treatments have been tried to try and dissolve these plaques and things and they haven't really been hugely successful but the treatments at the moment are basically what are called cholinesterase inhibitors. So um, mm-hmm. they're, they're trying to prevent the breakdown of uh, an important enzyme called acetylcholine in the brain. And um, so there's a drug called donepezil, which most people are, are on. It's I think the trade name's Aricept. And the majority of people would be put on that. And the idea is that it pr- probably improves concentration um, and it kind of maybe holds things for a little while and slows yeah. them down, but it doesn't actually treat the, mm-hmm. the underlying cause you know um and there's also another drug called memantine which works in a slightly different way um which some people are put on as well and there's a drug trial about to start to see the effectiveness of that because at the moment it's a bit more anecdotal really but it may be that people will be put on both of those drugs for a, another common dementia vascular dementia the problem there really is that people don't have enough blood flow to their brain. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's not, it's not to do with protein and tangles and things. So you can't treat them in the same way. Um, and for those, those people in some ways, it's a slightly good news story in that the rate is not going up as fast as was predicted. And that's because of all the health information about heart problems and, you know, low cholesterol and things like that. And, um, so, what's good for your heart, in a way, is good for your head in terms okay. of vascular dementia. So, so although there are less treatment options, that you know the rate is not increasing as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, dementia with Lewy bodies is is treated with the same sort of acetylcholinesterase and in, um, cholinesterase inhibitors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a great need for more treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great deal of work going on to try and find them, but of but course. really because we don't know why why those tangles and things occur. I mean, in Lewy body dementia, the, there's an abnormal protein as well. It's a different mm-hmm. one and it folds in a different way. But the question is, why does that happen? Mm-hmm. If we knew why that happened, maybe we could stop it further down the line. And that's yes. really the aim to stop mm-hmm. people before they get all these tangles and things. So the treatment options in terms of drugs are, are you know, not as good as we would like. Mm-hmm. Um, which is why it's important, really, that there are also what you call psychosocial interventions, yes. things like cognitive stimulation therapy. So, you know, we know that people who are socially isolated and do do worse, and so there are sort of formalized 12 sessions, 16 sessions um, of cognitive stimulation, and there, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, there are groups run by Alzheimer's and things. Mm-hmm games for the brain or whatever, just trying to, you know, s- stimulate people's interest. And mm-hmm. and, um, and. how effective yes. are they actually? Well, they're not going to take it away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, if you can gain someone's interest, um, mm-hmm. even for a short period of the day, I mean, some of the difficulties, particularly with Lewy body dementia, is that people become very apathetic. They, they sleep a lot in the day. You know, and it's that's no life for them. It's no life for their carers either, you know. So so I think if you can keep people motivated to a degree, you know, whether that's doing things in the house, you know, puzzles or crosswords or board games or, you know, taking an interest in the garden or cooking or, you know, any of those things that you you can do and it's not got to be very formalised. The results in terms of cognitive scores do tend to improve for a while but yeah. in the background you've still got these these problems going on you know the build of um you know the pathology whether it's alzheimer's or whatever it is mm-hmm. in your brain and so it's a kind of you it's a two-way thing isn't it you're trying to improve them yeah. but in the background you're being knocked by all the build-up of all these abnormal proteins yeah. so that that's the tension that can't go on forever um mm. you know so you kind of perhaps prolong things but we don't have a cure no. Mm
1: -hmm. Okay Um, and how about from the perspective of a carer of dementia what would you say the greatest challenges and unmet needs they face when supporting a loved one that's experiencing the symptoms of dementia?
2: I think often people feel very lonely with when their partner's got a diagnosis of dementia particularly as it progresses because They kind of lose that companionship and conversation, which, um, you know, a lot of relationships rely on. And and I think that's very difficult for people. Um, So I think one unmet need is just, you know, not feeling so alone. So having a a good social network of people with dementia or whose family members have dementia and also of just normal family relationships, you know, so that everybody doesn't take a step backwards and go, OK, you're the carer. But th- there's a kind of community network, whether that's friends, family, neighbours mm-hmm. or whatever. And I think that would be, make carers' lives a lot easier. I think also, particularly for people who's, who are caring for somebody with an early onset dementia, often those people are in their 50s maybe or early yeah. 60s. They might still be at work. They might have children going to university. Yeah. You know, So, so there's, there's no one typical carer. And for carers in that age demographic, you know, they might be juggling elderly parents themselves, careers, you know, I think perhaps a lot more support for them as a, as a sort of an additional demographic of how do those people cope as carers. So within the workplace, we have a lot of um, support for working mothers or working parents and paternity leave and all these kind of things. But I think maybe carer support needs to be a bit Mm. better flagged up within working environments I think that would be would be helpful for those carers.
1: Yeah definitely
2: Um, just from my own family's
1: experience I would definitely say that is the case you know it is an incredibly tricky task having to Mm. care particularly for a loved one that is going Mm. through this someone that you care about and seeing them sort of lose their identity in a way. So thinking and looking to the future now What are your hopes for the future for people living with dementia and also their caregivers?
2: Well, I mean, obviously, it would be lovely to have a a magic pill, wouldn't it? And to think that, you know, you could get a diagnosis and it would go away. But I think I would like there to be a sort of situation where maybe there would be a combination of treatments even if there wasn't just one pill I don't think that's mm-hmm. going to happen I think it's too complex but so that people could say live well with dementia so if you think back to something like HIV in the 80s it was a death sentence and nobody even wanted to talk to people with it. you know whereas now there's a lot of realization that with a, a collection of tablets you know it's not yeah. you know people can live well with HIV for a, for a lot of years you know almost well perhaps a a full lifespan Mm. and they just have to you know be careful and and to take those tablets but you know you can live well with it and I think we could get to that point with dementia you know whereas people could understand the modifiable risks and they could do what they could society could be supportive in the ways I've mentioned and perhaps the drug treatment and also the psychosocial support could be there Mm -hmm. so that it was a chronic condition perhaps and that you know you you, le- you lived with it, but your life was not dreadful, Decide. your family's life wasn't dreadful, um, the stigma wasn't wasn't there, and um, it becoming a chronic condition is, is feasible. When you think of the lifespan, you know, somebody could get a bit of mild cognitive impairment at 60, but they could live well and deteriorate very gradually, or hold, be in a holding pattern for some years after that, and perhaps still live with it for a, for a lot of years, and still be able to realise some of the goals of the things they wanted to do just with a bit of extra support you know they could still play golf they might only manage nine holes or they might need somebody with them to mark the scorecard you know they could still do baking they just might yeah. need someone to help turn the oven on or set the clock still letting people achieve their goals just with a bit of modification I think.
0: Massive thank you to Alison Killen for joining us on the podcast today and sharing your research and expertise. I've certainly learned so much from this and it's really got my gears going because it seems like with the way that technology is going we might in the future have a better chance of understanding our own risks around future health outcomes and in the case of dementia there's a really big kind of looming question in the back of my mind which is if I could know if I were going to get dementia with any kind of certainty, would I actually even want to know that information? So we're going to take a bit of an existential turn in the final part of this podcast and examine the question of whether um, we would want to know if we were going to get dementia.
1: hmm. Yeah so this is really interesting and what we did at HRW is we conducted a short survey which we sent around to all of our colleagues where we simply asked them that question which was imagine there was a test that could tell you with 100% certainty if you were going to get dementia would you want to know? It was really interesting the findings. I think myself and Emma were quite surprised by the findings because 55% of our colleagues said yes they would want to know if there was a test. And only 25 percent said no. And then we had 20 percent who said, I don't know.
0: Yeah, I was surprised because my my instinct, um, as we'll discuss, is that I would rather not know. Mm -hmm. But could you tell us some of the reasons, Caitlin, why people said that they did want to know?
1: Yeah, so a lot of people were saying about preparation. So preparing their family, their caregivers, as well as planning accordingly in terms of their finances, as well as their home setup. And we also had um, some other of our colleagues also suggesting that they would want to know so that they could just make lots of memories and spend time with people making their legacy, essentially, um, <laughs> before they started to experience the symptoms of dementia.
0: I love the response that I need time to build my legacy. <laughs> that okay. makes me and for uh, those of us that were less inclined to want to know this information, what kind of reasoning were people giving?
1: yep this is what I would have pressed no, just from the point of view of you know having people in my family that have had dementia and sort of seeing how they've progressed over years of sort of losing you know their identity really sadly, mm. so in terms of what our colleagues suggested as the main reasons was that they said there was no point knowing unless there was actually something out there to prevent or slow it that actually would just cause simply too much distress and worry and that they would unfortunately just be counting down the days until they started to experience those symptoms. Um,
0: Yeah I think those are some really interesting reasons and it resonates with me because it relates to cognitive bias which we see quite a lot in healthcare market research which is called information bias Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. information bias is our tendency to seek out more information even when it does not necessarily affect our actions so decision making experiments kind of since the 90s have found that there is a point after which new information doesn't actually have any consequences for the ultimate behaviors that we perform but we still feel this desire and think that more information will help us make better choices and that does seem logical and -hmm. and intuitive to think more information is always a good thing because surely we would always want to be more informed but I find the information bias um, is a very useful finding of behavioural science research because it reminds me about our tendency to fail to consider whether that new information that we're seeking will actually lead to different actions. And I think some of our colleagues have picked up on this on this question, because the distinction matters, particularly in the case of learning about your risk of dementia, because the cost of that information as our colleagues are pointing out, is not negligible. And actually, I think we ought to be wary of underestimating the impact of knowing such existential information and what that can do for our psyche. So for me, the question behind the question is whether learning about dementia risk will actually lead to any changes in our behaviour and lead us to to engage in more preventative Mm behaviours. And whether that is, you know, worth, worth the potential risk of upsetting our kind of fragile balance um, of mm. our existential ease.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's, yeah, really interesting. Just from your background as a behavioural scientist, how optimistic are you that people, knowing that potentially they would develop dementia in later life, that they would actually engage in sort of healthier lifestyle changes?
0: I don't mean to be too cynical, um, but just looking at the evidence of um, human behaviour change, the prospects are quite bleak. So if we think about any other health related behaviour, take smoking, let's say, as a case study, we know very well that smoking is a risky behaviour. And yet every cigarette that is sold is testament to the fact that just knowing about risks is not Usually enough to mobilise us and inspire us to change our behaviours. There's a lot more at play and there's a lot more at stake. Um, so yeah, usually information is is not enough. Mm-hmm. So Caitlin, you mentioned a little bit earlier that your first instinct was that you wouldn't want to know. But having spoken to Alison, has anything changed your mind or have, have your thoughts developed any more on on this mm-hmm. question?
1: Yeah so instinctively I did say no and I think it is just because of the reasons of the actual distress and worry that I expect that it would cause me. I know in myself as a person I know Mm -hmm. that it would cause great worry but I also do understand and I think from speaking to Alison as well as the research that I did at university I can understand the justification for wanting to know and I think the main point that I would make is actually the impact of dementia is not just on the person that has that diagnosis. Actually, it's often the impact that it has on the caregiver. From knowing my gran who had dementia for many years, Alzheimer's disease, and actually the toll that it took on my granddad having to care for her, it was enormous. And actually not only was his retirement, um, her retirement affected by this diagnosis, but his was and, you know, his elderly life, um, so I can understand people's justification in terms of wanting to plan accordingly to ensure that, you know, this massive burden in a way doesn't just rely on their spouse or their, their children.
0: Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure many listeners in the audience can can relate to that and um know many people who've been affected in this wider way um, Mm -hmm. by dementia. So on that note, um, if you're listening, do please leave us a comment and continue the discussion. We'd love to hear your point of view. My last thought on this question is a bit more of a wider concern in society about individualising risk. So uh, we've kind of fallen into the trap by asking ourselves this question of what would we do um, if we were going to get dementia and would it actually lead us to engage in any preventative behaviours but there is a larger concern about putting the focus of risk management at the individual level and the worry that this minimises the influence of important environmental factors on risk so social influences and policies that might impact behaviour or outcomes so, for instance, what are the relationships between poverty and stress and what this means for avoiding our chances of dementia or equally how unequal access to healthcare can mitigate risks for some and not others. Um, so I just wanted to put that note here just before we close. Mm-hmm.
1: So as well as our opinion and our colleagues opinion, we also asked Alison this and this is what she said.
2: I'm going to say no if I have to say either yes or no I'm going okay. to say no and I'm going to say no because I think there are so many other things that can come along in your life between yeah. now and the time at which you might get dementia that to live your whole life worrying that at the age of 75 you're you may you know you may struggle probably isn't very good for your mental mm-hmm. health uh, across the lifespan so for that point of view i would say no but having said that i still think it's worth living your life as if you might get dementia if that doesn't sound too much of a contradiction Mm -hmm. in that there are a lot of modifiable things that we can do to avoid getting dementia and there's um the lancet commission just came out with a report this month uh, that suggests that up to 40 percent of dementia cases could be avoided um if we if if 12 modifiable risks were were, um, addressed. And so those are kind of common sense things that, you know, like um, not being obese and not drinking alcohol excessively and other things like getting hearing impairments treated, not being socially isolated, um, getting depression treated and things like that. If you are prone to any of those 12 modifiable features, then if there's something you can do about them, then do it basically I mean some of those things are sort of structural societal things like low education Mm -hmm. so if people have a poor level of education they're more likely to develop dementia but also we know that people with a higher level of education have a sort of cognitive reserve so Mm -hmm. um they cope for longer okay despite you know so so those are sort of things, broader things that society needs to address. But some of the things like, say, the alcohol intake are personal things. So, mm-hmm. so I think you can you can say no, but you cannot totally put your head in the sand mm-hmm. if you see what I mean. So, yeah, but it, it's a tricky one. I can understand why people would say yes, because I think if you did know, then you would be able to, say, sign up for new medications mm-hmm. for drug trials, for treatment studies and things, you know, and you could be at the forefront of anything new that was developed. So I can understand why people might say yes.
0: Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this podcast. Thank you so much to Alison Killen. And finally, thank you, Caitlin. See you in the comments.
1: Take care.